Oh, it's good to see your faces, ladies and gentlemen. It is so good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I know it's a little chilly out there. So I know how easy it is to just stay home in your, in your pajamas. In fact, there may still be some people watching us from the comfort of their pajamas at home right now. <laughs> well, welcome. Those who are physically here and those who are online. Well, I want to remind you of this quote. It won't be up there much longer, but I want it to be up there long enough for you to remember it, the truth behind it. Nothing of any eternal significance happens apart from prayer. Say it one more time with me. Nothing of any eternal significance happens apart from prayer. And you don't have to read this out loud. I will read it. This also is going to change, but we're going to be changing scriptures of what the Word says about itself, what God's Word says about itself. Next week, I think there'll be a new one. All Scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Now, before we get into today's focal passage, I want to just recap it a little bit with you. Today, we're getting into not Acts chapter 2, but Acts part 2. We're going to finish up chapter 1. But just as a review of what we covered last week, I'm not going to read all the verses, though I am tempted to do so. I'm going to read just verses 4 through 8 to give you a little bit of a review of where we were last week. This is, uh, as you know, Jesus gathering the disciples together. Verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Not to leave Jerusalem. But to wait for what the Father had promised. Let me ask you a quick question. How good are you at waiting? We're not by nature very good at waiting, are we? Well, he said, no, you wait. Wait. Not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for what? What the Father had promised. And Jesus told him about this. He says, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they began asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Again, they still didn't quite get it. They were steeped in the traditional teaching that when the Messiah came, he was going to deliver Israel to its former place of prominence. Well, not yet. (laughs) Not yet. So he says in verse 7, he said to them, 
It is not for you to know periods of time or appointed times which the Father has set by his own authority. But, he says in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. And you know, Jesus in those few words, in that one verse, outlined the entire 28 chapters of the book of Acts. I'll cover that again at a different point. But I titled today, Obedience by the Numbers. Let's get into it. I should get my notes over here before I get much further. Follow along with me as I read the entire verses 12 through 26. And then I'm going to ask Don or Caleb, whoever is in, in charge of it back there, to reset me back to verse 12 when I get, after I get to the end, okay? Thank you. I meant to tell you that before the service. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upstairs room where they were staying. That is, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were continually devoting themselves with one mind to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. A group of about 120 people was there together and said, Brothers, a scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all the residents of Jerusalem. As a result, that field was called Hakeldama in their own language, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his residence be made desolate, and may there be none living in it and may another take his office. This translation, which I love, you don't have to love it as I do, but I love it for one, this is one of the reasons. Any quote that comes out of the Old Testament is capitalized in the New Testament. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who were accompanied, who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. 
And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all people, show which one of these two you have chosen to accompany this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Let's say a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge you as sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere God. And we come before you asking this morning that you would guide this sermon, not only my ability to speak, but everyone who is listening, their ability to listen and to receive your message this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, thank you, Caleb. Let's go through and do a little bit of observation, a little bit of background, a little bit of context for you so that you can understand. Part of the reason we did the review is so that you understand that Jesus told them to go and wait, and other parts of that as well. So verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. Olivet is actually more like a hill. It's only about 400 or so feet high. Uh, and this was about a Sabbath day journey. For those of you who may or may not be as, it may not, you may not remember it as well, Sabbath day journey is about 2,000 cubits. I think it comes from Joshua chapter 3, I think the biblical basis of it, if I recall correctly. But it was really a, rabbin, a rabbinic teaching. It was a rabbinic law. So remember, the disciples had been instructed by Jesus to stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high, as the uh, NIV puts it, I believe. You can find that also in Luke 24, 49. <clears throat> so when they had entered the city, they went up to the upstairs room where they were staying. That is, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, son of Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. What Peter, excuse me, Peter, Luke, Dr. Luke is doing here, because he has previously, in, in his gospel, Luke, named all 12 of, the, 12 of the disciples. What he is doing here is essentially setting it up, because those of the Jewish faith knew it would be glaring that this number is not 12. And we'll get into that in just a few minutes. Because 12 is a very important number, biblically speaking. In the Hebrew culture, in the Jewish culture, Judaism of that day especially, it still is actually. But for the Jews amongst them, this would be glaring. See, with us today in our modern society, we look at this and go, hey, they got enough to make a football team here, you know. This, that's good enough, right? Why not just move on with the 11? But that's, you've got to understand that there are cultural sensitivities, religious sensitivities. Never has there been a more religious people on the face of God's green earth as the Jewish nation, the, Israel. So, 
Again, they went upstairs. You know that this might be the upper room that we know of from the Passover dinner. Um, It might be, but we don't know. There's all kinds of speculation on every detail of this passage. But what it boils down to here, one thing I want you to know, is there's a reason for this upper room. Why are they going upstairs in this place? Well, for one thing, a practical thing is, you know, this is a hustling, bustling city, Jerusalem is. So if you're downstairs, all the noise of the street is invading the room. It can be very distracting. Not only that, all the people moving, if you see out the windows, also people looking in the windows, it can be very distracting. So the upper room, upper rooms uh, were often rented, actually, for the purpose of having assemblies, meetings of different kinds, for prayer, for worship, what have you, for the purpose of getting away from those distractions. So that's part of it. All these were continually devoting themselves with one mind to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Notice this. This is very important. All these were continually devoting themselves. This is strong language. Devoting themselves with one mind. One mind. You know how hard it is to get a group of people of one mind? It's impossible, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from God being part of the equation. As you saw, we read earlier, there's about 120 people in this room. You know, you got to think about it. You've got Simon the Zealot, which is like this, you know, we (laughs) probably a political party that is uh, pretty angry at Rome. They want to throw off the shackles of Rome. And you've got the collaborator, Matthew, Matthew in the room, who's been a tax collector. These two would have been at each other's throats in any other format. You think about that. And that's just one example. So, They're all of one mind. For what? To pray. To pray. And we'll get back to that. I'm moving quickly. At this time, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. A group of about 120 people was there together. So, what's what's the big deal about this? Peter is taking leadership. He is showing that he is, in part, the rock that Jesus said he was. Even though Jesus was speaking of himself as the rock of the church, he is also speaking of Peter taking leadership here. And he says, Brothers, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, this brothers thing he's saying, this is an introduction, this is a strong, like a formal introduction. Men, brothers, he's speaking to the men. And he's speaking like he's giving an official authoritative statement here. And indeed he is. 
<clears throat> it is typical of a formal address found with first century synagogues. Now Peter's words in verse 16 and again in verse 21 speak of the necessity, the had to in this translation, of Scripture being fulfilled in relation to Judas's defection and the choice of another to replace him. The understanding is that God is doing something necessarily involved in his divine plan. These folks, Peter and these believers, recognize and understand the sovereignty, the divine providence of the God that they worship. I want you to look for this. You'll notice this as we go through. The understanding is that God is doing something necessarily involved in part of his divine plan. But let me boil it down for you. The two Psalms here speak of false companions and wicked men, generally, and which by means of exegetical rules used in that day could be applied to the false disciple and the wicked man we know as Judas Iscariot. <clears throat> For he was counted among and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. A little bit gory, huh? little bit gory. Yeah, I get it. You know, there's a... Bible critics like to point to this particular thing and say, you know, there's a contradiction between this verse and Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. They say there's a contradiction because Matthew 27, 3 through 10 says that he was hanged, that he hung himself. Okay? Well, for one thing, Matthew has a different audience and a different purpose in his gospel. So he doesn't go on with the rest of the gory details. But you see, uh, for the Gentiles that Luke is aiming at, largely, more detail is needed. They thought, amongst the Gentiles, the Greeks, and so forth, they saw suicide as largely a neutral kind of thing. They didn't view it as necessarily an evil act or a sin or anything along that line. So Dr. Luke goes a step further and shows the awful nature of Judas's, shall we say, reward. So <clears throat> they wanted, he wanted to lay out how Judas died in all of its gory details, obviously, because this isn't typical, is it? Scripture is not typical. He is putting an exclamation point here. When you read that, how can you read that and not have it make you open your eyes a little bit? Wow. Scripture isn't pulling any punches here. Dr. Luke is not sugarcoating this. He's making it as ugly as you can possibly expect him to do. But let me give you the those who want to say that this is a, a contradiction, that's, those are folks who are going to say the Bible does this and doesn't do that. They're, they're critics. They're going to find flaw in Scripture because they are the enemies of God. Period. It's one thing to have a certain, uh, you know, you, you want to look at this with somewhat of a critical eye and examine what Scripture says. 
That is true, but it is not necessary to have some further, to say this is a contradiction. Luke is adding to the account. Luke is saying, plain and simple, a little bit more than what Matthew said. It is fair to assume that uh, yeah, get the name right, Stan, Judas hung himself on a tree overlooking a cliff. And either the rope didn't hold out, or the branch didn't hold out, something didn't hold out, and he fell to the rocky cliffs below. So when it snapped, he went onto the rocks below, and and he burst open. Okay? Why am I harping on that? That's a good question. I don't have an answer for you. I sometimes get hung up on a detail a little longer than I need to. <laughs> There's also the contradiction in that, in that um, how could Judas have bought the field with the 30 pieces of silver when he went in and threw the 30 pieces of silver out of remorse at the very people who had been looking, who paid him that 30 pieces of silver so that he would help them to execute Jesus. And in fact, those religious folks couldn't take the money back. It was blood money. So they went and took the 30 pieces of silver and bought the potter's field that Judas's gory, nasty body fell into. That's how that happened. And you know that's why it's called the field of blood? Not just because his body burst open all gross and nasty and ugly in the field, but primarily because it had been purchased with blood money. Judas chose this way. You understand? Can you imagine a greater waste of time any human being could have ever done in their whole life? What a tragedy this was. By his own divine choice, though he was surrounded by disciples, true followers of Jesus Christ, though he walked in the footsteps and heard the teachings and saw the miracles of Christ for three years. He betrayed him. And you know, there's another picture a little bit later on here, but I want to draw to you a contra- the, the contrast. Peter betrayed Jesus when he was in trial, right? But what did Peter do? He was also very remorseful, but in his repentance, he returned to Jesus and was restored by Jesus. That's repentance. Remorse and repentance. Whereas Judas just felt bad and took himself out. Okay? One leads to life. The other stops short and leads to death. You see the distinction? You see, another difference is Peter loved Jesus He genuinely, truly loved him. He faltered and made a bad mistake by denying Jesus and even swearing in the process to make his point known because he was 
afraid for his own life. But you see, he loved Jesus. Judas didn't love Jesus. Judas loved Jesus for all he could get out of Jesus. And when he knew the time was coming, when he couldn't get anything more out of Jesus, he decided he was going to turn Jesus in like a bag of returnable bottles and get some money out of the deal. So I ask you, what is the distinction for you? Are you in this for what you can get out of Jesus? The benefits of being in the local church? Are you in this for fire insurance? So you don't have to spend eternity in hell and that's the only reason you're here? Or are you in this? Are you a follower of Christ because you love Christ? There's a difference. There's a distinction. It's important to know that what that distinction is and it's also important to examine yourself to see if you are truly in the faith. It's a good thing to do. All right. Let me move on from the gore. And it became, it became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, this gore. As a result, the field was called Halkadama in their own language. That is, field of blood. So, verse 20. Here's the quote from the Old Testament. Now, Peter, I'm not so sure about Peter's uh, exegesis. I'm not sure about his hermeneutics, to use a couple of Bible college seminary terms here. But it's clear that Peter is quoting these Psalms, though they are speaking of other evil men in their original writing, he is stating clearly that this, is, this applies to Judas as well. So I want you to know that Psalms, these messianic psalms, also pointed to Judas. In Psalm 41.9, for you note-takers, Psalm 41.9, also Psalm 55, uh, 12, 15. He said, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his residence be desolate, and may there be none living in it, and May another take his office. These psalms speak of false companions and wicked men who have become enemies of God's righteous servant. Peter added those ominous words of Psalm 109.8 in order to defend the legitimacy of replacing a member of the apostolic band. We don't need to insist that early Christians believed the primary reference of these two psalms was to Judas. But, it was speaking to the retribution spoken of as coming upon false companions and wicked men in general is especially applicable to Judas, who among all men who's ever walked the face of the earth was as false and hypocritical as any man has ever been. Therefore, it is necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time, us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in, and among us, in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, was one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Why? Why is this so important? What did Jesus tell them? You'll be my witnesses, right? They need to bear witness. The disciples are becoming apostles. 
What is an apostle? One who is sent by the Lord. One who is sent by the Lord. And they are sent by the Lord primarily to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. The, the original 12. So they need to be 12 in number. You see, that number 12 is very important to the Hebrews. And we'll get to that. So <clears throat> he gives basically these criteria. It's interesting that he says these two things, that first the successor has to be familiar with, and, and with the workings, has to have been with Jesus all along, and second, that, uh, that they have been a witness to Christ's resurrection. Well, interestingly, half of the original, about half of the original 12 didn't actually, <laughs> didn't actually fit this description. They came along after the baptism, after Jesus was baptized. Um, but what they're doing here, and this is, you could say that they are essentially going the extra mile. They're going the extra step. They want to make sure that this disciple who is replacing, excuse me, this one who's going to be an apostle is going to be fully able to witness, okay? Interestingly enough, we don't hear of Matthias after this. I don't know why, but you see, I want to point out, by the way, as we get a little bit further on here, you know that there is some scripture that is descriptive and not prescriptive. And we'll get to that. Descriptive, but not prescriptive. So, <clears throat> they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. <clears throat> Before I get on to that part, though, let me back up, because I want to talk about this thing called remnant theology of late Judaism of that time period made it mandatory that any group that presented itself as the righteous remnant of the nation and had the responsibility of calling the nation to repentance and permeating it for God's glory must represent itself as the true Israel, not only in its proclamation, but also in its symbolism. For instance, the Qumran community had 12 leaders leading up to, leading, heading up their community. Consequently, the early church found itself required to replace defector Judas so as to have a full complement of 12 in its apostolic ranks. Why? The 12-fold ap the, the apostolic witness was required of early Jewish Christianity if it was to represent the Jewish nation as the culmination of Israel's hope and the true people of Israel's Messiah. I got a list of Bible references, Matthew chapter 19, Luke chapter 22, Revelation chapter 21, in fact, where it mentions, and the wall of the city, the new Jerusalem, had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the names of, and it goes on. The number 12 in the Hebrew mind represents perfect, complete government, God's government the 12 tribes. The 12 apostles will sit on thrones in heaven and judge the 12 tribes. And it all ties together. 
And there, the, 12, the number 12 comes up, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time on it, but I want you to understand the importance of it. Because you see, we're linking the Old Testament and the New Testament here in the Gospels and going into Acts. We are showing, though this is about the witness to the Jewish nation, that it's important. This is Why are they doing this? Because it's important to their witness. It was a cultural matter. They, could, they knew that they could not witness effectively and properly. They wouldn't even get the time of day from Jews if they didn't get this peace and order. There are a lot of people who want to claim that the apostle, they should have waited that the apostle Paul was coming, he was going to be the replacement. The apostle Paul was a Jew himself, but he was primarily an apostle Primarily, not entirely, but primarily an apostle to who? The Gentiles. His calling was different than these. Not completely different, but it was a little different. Okay? So that's important to know. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all people. Show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. One of the qualifications that had to be sent, had to be appointed by God. By God. Well, Jesus isn't there anymore. This is the first church business meeting... <laughs> ordination ceremony, if you will, without Jesus present. They're doing the best they know how. They're using an Old Testament way of doing it. You know, the casting of lots was common in the Old Testament. But here, they're asking. Now, why would they ask such a thing? Because, number one, they believe God is listening. They're praying, believing that He hears. Number two, they believe that God is going to, in this casting of lots or drawing of lots, however you want to look at it, that God is in control. He is omnipotent. This is his, provid this is his providence. This is his sovereignty that is at work here. Even the smallest detail, like, you know, Bible says that not a sparrow falls from the sky, except God knows about it. There is no detail. R.C. Sproul used to say, if a single molecule in all of the known universe and unknown universe is not under God's control, he is not completely sovereign. I'm here to tell you he is completely sovereign, and that's not my opinion. That's Scripture's opinion. It's as crystal clear if you read about the sovereignty of God in the Bible there is not a single thought you have ever thought or a single word you have ever spoken or a single motion or movement of your body that you have ever done in all of your days that was outside of the control of God's will. Not a single bit of it. That might be a little difficult to gather, a little difficult to grasp. But Scripture is crystal clear on this crystal clear. And they are showing their belief in that right there. 
Okay. Take a deep breath for a moment. I'm getting myself a little excited here. <laughs> and they drew lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Okay. Let me wrap this up because I want you to understand that this casting of lots and the way they did this is descriptive. Some, th this part, you notice, I want you to know a couple of things. Not only is Matthias not mentioned again in Scripture, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not mentioned again after this. Okay? It doesn't mean that Mary wasn't important. She certainly was. But there's a new thing coming here. You get it? There's a new huge thing coming here in the next chapter, and we'll be on it next week. And it's big, man. It's really, really big. But, again, I said I wanted to wrap this up. Descriptive. It's talking about the drug the casting of lots, that doesn't happen again after this. It's completely unnecessary after this. So that's descriptive, but not prescriptive. Descriptive, Scripture is describing what happened. But when Scripture is prescribing what to do, it doesn't stop. It keeps going on through the rest of Scripture. This is not prescriptive. We are not supposed to be doing that sort of thing anymore, drawing lots, casting lots. A new thing. A whole new thing. So let me close with some observations. Observations, applications, takeaways, however you want to look at it. So what does this mean, Pastor Stan? How does this apply to me? These are my observations. You can agree or disagree. But these apostles and disciples... I say apostles and disciples. The disciples became apostles, but there's 120 people in that upper room. It's a big place. I don't even know what the capacity of this sanctuary is. Somebody here knows. I'm sure we got a fire permit, an occupancy permit, something to that effect. But 120 people is a pretty big room, wouldn't you say? Okay. So those who were not apostles were still disciples. These are all believers. Think of all the people that Jesus performed miracles on, people that witnessed miracles throughout the Gospels. Some of those people are there, you know? Imagine some of those characters in those stories. These apostles and disciples were motivated. They are excited, folks. Why are they excited? Let me ask you, are you motivated and excited? They're waiting, but they're not lounging around in a recliner doing nothing. Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean sitting and doing nothing. So, five observ observable scriptural reasons why they're motivated. One, they believed in the reality of the resurrection. They had witnessed the resurrection. They saw that a dead man got up and walked. And he ate with them and visited with them for 40 days. And he taught them all about the kingdom of God. Number two, they believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And 
knew that they would soon receive him. The Holy Spirit is a him. The Holy Spirit is a he. He's a person. He's not like the Star Wars, may the force be with you. He's a person with thoughts and feelings who carries out the will of the Father and the Son. And they knew he would soon be upon them. Number three, they believed that Christ would return in power. The two men in gleaming clothes, the angels like the ones at the tomb, just told him, he's coming back like you just saw him on the backside of that mountain. And four, they believed in the power of prayer. Do you believe in the power of prayer? They believed in the power of prayer and that God was in fact answering their prayers. They knew personally the God because they had walked with him for three years and 40 days. (laughs) Okay, the total number, I don't know. Add the math. You can figure that out. We can do a Bible study on that. But you understand, they knew God. They knew his character. They knew his love for them. They knew that he had all knowledge and all authority. All knowledge and all authority in heaven and on earth. They believed in the power of prayer. And they believed in the God and loved the God who was answering that prayer. And number five, they believed in the Holy Scriptures. They were studying the Scriptures. They had been in the synagogue and the upper room. How often they went back and forth, I don't know. But that's what they did for some 10 days between 40 days after Christ rose, he ascended. It's about 10 more days to Pentecost. About 10 more days. So, this belief, all of this belief, you know, James says, you have faith? Show me your works. We are not saved by works. We're saved by faith, by grace through faith. But if your faith is genuine, there's going to be some fruit. There's going to be evidence that you have faith, that you have belief. And you know what the evidence here was? Their faith was proven by their obedience, which is why I said obedience by the numbers is the title. Their faith was proven by their obedience in doing what nobody likes to do, was waiting. Jesus told him to wait. Now, it isn't that they weren't motivated. It isn't that they didn't want to get doing something, but they were obedient to Christ's command, his orders, as it said in the previous sermon that I gave you, as it says in the Word of God. Orders, not suggestions. Orders from our commander-in-chief. And they were following it enthusiastically. Their faith was proven in their obedience and waiting. It was obedient in their obedience in prayer. Remember that? It was proven, their obedience, their faith was proven by their obedience by studying the Scriptures and by assembling together. Scripture says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Right? And by their supernatural unity. Their supernatural unity. And I close with this illustration. Robert J. Morgan, a pastor who actually wrote a book of illustrations. 
he wrote about, wrote this article called The Problem with Samson. He's not talking about the biblical Samson, but this is a Bible-believing family, so they knew about the biblical Samson, but they had a great Dane. How many of you have dogs? Or ever have had dogs? How many of you love your dogs? Samson was a great Dane. And he lived up to the name. It's a big, strong dog. But you see, they had a problem with Samson. They would fence him in. They did everything they could to contain Samson. Samson, because of his size and his strength, could dig under fences, could jump over fences. They couldn't contain him. Well, they got this book, and I'm forgetting the title now. I didn't write it all out. But they got this book telling all about how to train dogs. And in this book, it talks about a lot of people think their dogs love them. Why? Because their dogs, when they come home, I can think of my little Mickey with his rear end going back and forth so much, he's practically bending in two. He's really enthusiastic. He always brings a bone up to me. Ah, ah, ah. He's talking away. He's just excited to see me, and it's great. Don't you love being greeted that way with such enthusiasm? And he follows us around the house. Ooh, you know, wherever we go, Terry will go into the, into the bedroom to do some quilting, and he'll go in, and he'll hang out with her for a while, and then he'll come out, and he'll hop up in the recliner and get in my lap and all of that stuff. But I notice that with Samson here, Samson would cut loose and he'd be gone, gone. And Samson was bolting. And you know, this dog trainer that wrote this book said, you know, people think that their dogs love them, but in fact, those dogs, are in love with the comforts of home. They're in love with what you can do for them. See, you know how you can tell if your dog loves you? If you accidentally leave the door open and they can get outside, they're not gone for hours or days. Your dog is outside, but they stay within ears, within earshot of you. They're so tuned in because of their love for you. If they love you, they don't run away. Now, this, there's exceptions to that rule. If they're chasing a squirrel or a deer or something like that, their instincts, I get that. But I can honestly say we have a collar for our dog with an invisible fence. I know our dog loves us because we've put him out any number of times without that. He doesn't go anywhere. He goes outside and we can just say, Mickey, oh Mick. And here he is. I draw that distinction, and I close with this. I ask you, are you the dog that every single time you get a chance to cut loose and run away from your Lord? You run away and you're gone for days or hours or weeks? Or are you the one listening for the voice, never getting too far away? Are you listening for his voice? Does he have to restrain you more? Or are you drawn to him because of your love?
Are you listening? Food for thought. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are God, and we are not. We are your people. We love you, but we also know that apart from you loving us first, we wouldn't even have that ability. It is by grace through faith that we are saved. Lord, I'm asking that you take this message home. That you make this message sink deep into our hearts and bring forth fruit from our lives. And help us to remember our love for you and your love for us and the fact that you have called us to a mission to prepare for that mission, to be in prayer for that mission, to be praying for each other to be workers in the harvest, evangelists. Help us, Lord, to be witnesses of our great and wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.